From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Native American communities historically face barriers when it comes to banking. What economic challenges does that pose during the pandemic? Then, how a little bad luck has helped Mesa County keep the novel coronavirus at bay. Plus, Colorado athletes team together to encourage personal responsibility to stay safe. This is really the ultimate team sport right now. We have to play for each other, and that means staying at home and practicing physical distancing. But until there is a cure, until there is a vaccine, we all have to do our part. And what does it take to turn the Five Points Jazz Festival into a virtual event? I didn't realize how much I missed playing with people. It was so fun. I mean, it was it was very different, but still, just to hear everyone sound. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. As businesses struggle to cope with shutdowns, disrupted supply chains, and the roller coaster stock market, many are turning to banks for assistance with loans and applications for state and federal money. Native American communities historically face barriers when it comes to banking. What does that mean during a pandemic? Thomas Ogard has perspective as he's working with tribal entities across the country. He's the president of Denver-based Native American Bank. It's owned by a tribal consortium. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in Colorado is among its more than 30 shareholders. Hi, Thomas. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Native American Bank is assisting businesses that apply for the Paycheck Protection Program. More than 90 percent of those you've helped are owned by Native American people and tribes and tribal entities across the country. Tell us about the kinds of businesses you're working with. Well, it's really run the gamut. Uh, we've we've done mom and pop shops that need, you know, $1,000 or $2,000. And then we've done larger uh, Native-owned entities that... Uh, employ hundreds of people, and and the loans may exceed $1 million. So it's everything from, you know, small restaurants to large employment, uh, could be hotels. Even casinos today are eligible for uh, PPP loans, and we've been able to support Indian country on a number of different fronts. And I think you're working with tribal nations around the country, right? We are. We are. We are a, a national-based uh, bank, and so we've done uh, some of these Paycheck Protection Program loans in Alaska. Uh, we've done them out east. We've done them in California and the Midwest, so it really does cover the entire country. The Paycheck Protection Program is in its second round of funding through the CARES Act. How is this round going? You know, for us, actually, the, the second round has seen a similar number of applications as round one, but more in terms of dollars. And, uh, you know, I think it's simply because uh, the Treasury program expanded who was eligible. And consequently, as a result of that, we've been able to incorporate loans to some of these other businesses that are now eligible. So for us, it's been busy. There's still money available Uh, We continue to work through applications that are coming in. We've had 128 uh, applications approved for about $38.1 million, and uh, not all of those have been documented, closed, or funded, but the vast vast majority have. And uh, it's been really rewarding to see the responses we're getting from the borrowers. 
I want to bring in Florence Ludka. She's the chief financial officer for OISTA, a Longmont-based nonprofit that Native American Bank assisted in applying for a PPP loan. She's Ojibwe. Hi, Florence. Hi, thank you for having me. OISTA is in an interesting position. It's both a nonprofit assisted by PPP funding, and its mission is actually to assist Native communities in developing financial assets. Tell us briefly what OISTA does. So OISTA is um, a Native CDFI, which is a community development financial institution. We are also national, so we assist tribal communities all across the United States through other CDFIs, uh, boots on the ground in our Native communities. And what does it mean for OISTA that the PPP loan is able to assist with employee salaries during the pandemic and the economic fallout? So it's been really helpful and beneficial to us um, as an intermediary lender uh, to other Native CDFIs and Indian communities. Our portfolio um, is suffering as a result of all the job losses um, in Native communities. And so we had a a large reduction in revenue coming in. So the PPP program has really helped us to just be able to keep our staff um, fully employed and to continue our mission and providing services um, in Indian country across the U.S. Now let's talk about those jobs lost and something that makes this financial crisis particularly difficult for Native American communities is that they're historically underbanked. Florence, what does that mean and how does the current situation exacerbate that? Yeah, so in a lot of our a lot of our Native communities are in rural rural areas of the U.S. and there's not um, you know national bank franchises in, in many of the communities. Um, also, you know, a lot of our Native Americans do not have, um, you know, good credit scores, um, lack, um, live in poverty, so lack, you know, the higher wage income. So there's, you know, traditionally for Native Americans, banking is has been hard for them. So what community financial um, institutions do is it actually you know, brings a different way of banking. Um, we re- we rarely say no uh, to a loan application. And if we do say no, it's, it's really not a no. We say it's not yet. Um, and we work with these particular individuals to get them loan ready so that they can, you know, start uh, building their credit portfolio and increasing their credit line, um, as well as get them into homes, allow them to buy cars and, you know, home improvements, um, just various different things like that. So, so the impact um, of this is, is wide-ranging. To put this a little bit in perspective, we have 574 federally recognized um, Native nations across the U.S. And um, directly, uh, tribal gaming um, and non-gaming enterprises support more than 1.1 million jobs for our Native communities. So with all of these shut down, um, there's like 500-plus tribal casinos shut down across the U.S. right now. With all of these shut down, the impact on in Indian country is horrendous. And I wonder if you could speak to some of the specific obstacles that Indigenous communities face when it comes to getting loans as well. I know that some of the complication is a poor understanding on the part of some banking institutions on how lands and trust work. Right, that is correct. Um, there are um, a lot of people don't want to deal with um, you know anybody living in Native communities because of the land trust issues. Um, so we have you know, kind of that segregation from our national banking institutions. And most of it is just a part of understanding. It it does take, it is a little bit more work um, to, for example, you know, fund a mortgage um, on on tribal land, but it is doable and it is possible. And it's just a matter of, you know, our national banking institutions being educated and understand the whole process and, and how these things work. Um, you know, in fact, 
some of the one big misunderstanding is that a lot of um, a lot of mortgages on tribal land and trust land is actually um, more secure than just a normal mortgage just sitting out in the middle of nowhere in rural America. And that's because, you know, our tribes want to keep um, our Native Americans in homes. And so if a, some, a Native American is in trouble with their mortgage, a lot of times the tribes will buy those mortgages, will buy them out just to keep that, that land and those deeds, you know, in in the community. So so in some ways they're actually more secure, but it's, it's a misunderstanding out there that, that people just don't understand that mm-hmm. in general. And then the effect of not having access to good banks, does that mean that people are driven toward predatory lenders? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost a, a kind of a, another pandemic within itself um, in our Native communities. There's a lot of uh, you know, payday lenders um, that charge exorbitant fees, um, and some of our some of our tribal communities and our members living in those communities just don't have any other access. So, if they get to a Wednesday and don't have food on their table for their family, they're gonna they're gonna try to do whatever they can, you know, to feed their family. So they oftentimes end up going, you know, to those predatory lenders. Uh, another, you know, tragedy in Indian country is also, you know, uh, car dealerships. Some of these mom-and-pop car dealerships offer, you know, um, on-site financing. A lot of the, a lot of times those financing rates are, you know, 20-plus percentage points um, on the dollar. So it's really, um, really detrimental, especially right now during this crisis. And Thomas, what economic challenges do you see specifically facing Indian country during the COVID-19 crisis? Well, I think Florence has articulated those pretty well. We're seeing the job losses in particular is... Uh, substantial. The access to credit, as has been discussed, is certainly real. And it, for us, in looking at that in our conversations with tribal leaders around the country, is simply trying to provide what other options are available so that they can find a way to continue to meet the needs of their tribal members. And you know, it, it is a lot of these dollars that are generated either through gaming revenues or other entities that provide resources go into other programs for the tribal communities, and those dollars are not there today. So consequently, uh, you know, we're advocating through our legislators and, and through Congress to do some carve-outs so that Indian country in and of itself uh, can uh, have some dedicated dollars that will go toward making the tribal communities more sustainable. Florence, what economic issues do you see facing Native American communities in Colorado, both the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute tribes, as well as a significant urban Indian population? Yes, in particular, in response to COVID-19, the pandemic, um, mostly it is as a result of a loss of wages. And that's just because of everything being shut down, whether that's small businesses or the casinos, or tribally um, owned enterprises, and um, also the government aspects of tribal nations in general. And it also strikes me that when we talk about economics in Indian country, it's not just about the preservation of businesses, it's also about cultures. Florence, this is such a broad question when we're talking about hundreds of tribal nations across the U.S., but what are some of the cultural needs specific to Native Americans right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, um, first and foremost, the pandemic, the whole stay at home and social distancing, that's against, um, kind of goes against our cultural norms in um, Native communities. So we're very family oriented. We take care of our elders, um, you know, our, our 
aunties and our, you know, grandmothers and um, mothers and children and things like that. So the whole social distancing thing has really impacted that whole cultural uh, need and, you know, what we're used to, how we're used to functioning in our family units. So um, by not being able to go to our elders and take care of them or bring them lunches or meals, um, you know, that that's not only hurting the elder person, but it's also hurting, you know, our our feelings as well, because we we feel like we're failing. We can't do what we're normally doing and what we've you know grown accustomed to doing through our teachings and our culture and and just doing like basically the right thing. So so it's really um, had an impact on you know how we're doing things. That's Florence Ledka, Chief Financial Officer for Oista, a Longmont-based nonprofit that aims to empower Native American communities financially. We also heard from Thomas Ogard, president of Native American Bank based in Denver. After the break, what Governor Polis told President Trump about how Colorado is reopening. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support CPR and help your fellow Coloradans at the same time. Right now, when you become a new member or add to your monthly giving, you'll provide a week's worth of groceries to a Colorado family, thanks to a partnership with the Colorado Health Foundation and five food banks across our state. Stay informed. Stay connected. You make it possible at CPR.org. It was an offer that Colorado Governor Jared Polis said he could not refuse, a meeting with President Donald Trump Wednesday at the White House. It was an opportunity, Polis said, to tell Trump about how Colorado has responded to the coronavirus, including a topic that Trump was eager to know about, how Colorado is opening back up. Polis told Trump businesses are opening in a safe way. People are being responsible. I mean, you know, and and it's that individual responsibility that's going to make sure that we can stay on this trajectory. CPR's Washington reporter Caitlin Kim is with us to talk about how yesterday's White House meeting went. Hi, Caitlin. Hey, Avery. These two men, Trump and Polis, spoke to the media about their meeting. What did they have to say? Well, Governor Polis said he wanted to make sure the president got the real picture of what states like Colorado are facing and need. So he was there to talk about supplies and how the state and federal government could be better partners in this area. Partnership, that was a word he used a lot. Now, Polis pointed out that going into the White House, you know, everyone gets tested, which is very different from how you and I and even members of Congress live. So it's this like artificially safe environment. So Polis said he wanted to make sure Trump heard about sort of the fear and the anxiety that everyday people live with. Now, for his part, the president was focused on states opening back up. He painted a fairly rosy picture of where he thinks the economy is heading, and he praised Polis for the steps that Colorado has been taking to get businesses going again. Now, the governor told the president some of the counties hit hard early have been able to open up because of the work and planning that went into the local response. Because they they acted early. They have great county health departments. They look at the science. They look at the data. Um, Their residents stayed home. Right. Everything the experts have been saying to do. Governor Polis has been vocal about need for more supplies, PPE, testing. Colorado needs these things. And he's been critical of what he says is unfair competition from the federal government in trying to secure them. Did that come up at this meeting? 
You know, it came up, but he did not frame it that way. Polis talked about the state-federal partnership. Look, overall, Governor Polis sounded happy with the results from the meeting. He said Colorado is expecting 96,000 Thermo Fisher tests and additional supplies in the next couple of days from the federal government. He said that would help the state reach its um, goal of 8,500 tests per day by the end of May. And he talked about FEMA sending two shipments of masks to nursing homes, which gives the state some breathing room as it also tries to purchase um, PPE supplies. And he made a pitch to the president to keep that program going through July. And I think we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. Besides concerns about testing and supplies, the coronavirus has done a lot of economic damage. Did the governor bring up any of those issues with the president? You know, I asked Governor Polis about this after his meeting, and he said he did talk to Trump about what can be done to help the hospitality, tourism, and restaurant industries, because even if restaurants and tourist sites open up, crowds might not come back for a while. And the other big issue for Colorado and other states is additional aid, and I should add additional flexible aid. This is getting more urgent since Colorado has two months to cut about $3 billion from its state budget if the federal government doesn't step in with significant help. Um, This is what the governor had to say. Yeah, so the president expressed support for flexible funding. Uh, He also indicated the desirability of borrowing at zero percent, and part of that would be to support uh, state and local uh, response efforts. Now, I should point out that President Trump has gone back and forth on this issue, saying at times he supports additional aid to states and at other times that he doesn't want to bail out poorly managed blue states. You know, Colorado is not one that he's named as that. This issue has also become quite politicized in Congress and especially is starting to divide Republicans. An attempt last week to allow flexible funding for states was blocked by one senator, Republican Rick Scott of Florida. On the other side, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner was part of a group of senators who on Tuesday lobbied, a group of Republican senators, I should say, who on Tuesday lobbied the president to support flexible aid. And this is going to be another front to watch in the coming weeks. Of course, political divisions have increasingly emerged in the coronavirus response. I wonder, was there any of that on display in this meeting between the Republican president and Colorado's Democratic governor? You know, no, quite the opposite. You know, they bantered quite a bit in front of the press. Polis joked about his haircut, you know, but he also used it as a a way to mention that, you know, his barber wore a mask, he wore a mask. Trump mentioned he skied in Colorado, and this allowed Polis to talk about how some late spring skiing might still happen. This is what Trump had to say about his meeting with the two governors yesterday. One happens to be a Democrat, okay, but we've worked together, and I think we've worked together very well. You know, after the meeting, Governor Polis said he wasn't there to pick a fight or criticize the president. He wasn't there to lecture him on the benefits of mail-in voting or any other topic like that. He was there to advocate around COVID-19, and that is exactly what he did. CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Avery. When it comes to coronavirus, Mesa County has earned high marks for low numbers. Even though the county is home to Grand Junction, the Western Slope's largest population center, its positive COVID-19 numbers have stayed well below the state average. As of Wednesday afternoon, the latest county coronavirus count is 53, and the county has had no deaths due to the virus. Freelance journalist Nancy Lofholm joins us from Grand Junction, where she lives and has been reporting on coronavirus. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Avery. Based on the low numbers in Mesa County, the county asked for and received a variance to ease up on stay-at-home restrictions earlier than the rest of the state. What does that variance mean for the county? Well, it basically means that we're only semi-grounded at this point. 
we were granted this variance in the first week in May, and it means that um, restaurants can be open at 30% capacity. Churches can be open with up to 50 people. Gyms are open at 30%. Um, no group classes and people have to wear masks. Um, retail businesses can be open with no more than 10 people. So quite a few changes here, which we're very welcome with, uh, as you can imagine, with people in Grand Junction. Jeff Kerr, director of the Mesa County Department of Public Health, uh, told me that going slow has been key to getting all these things open. We've taken a lot of precautions just to protect our low incidence of COVID-19 in Mesa County. So I, I do feel good about that slow rollout, and I, I think that as these agencies then show that we haven't increased risk, then are there other groups, other industries that we can start to work with to ask for uh, waivers in the future from the state of Colorado? I understand that there are a couple of reasons behind why Mesa County's infection rate has stayed so low. They have to do with space and with some bad luck hindsight. First, let's talk about space. Explain how that's helped. Well, Mesa County has 155,000 residents, and they're spread out over 3.3 million square miles. And a majority of that is open public land. So as you can imagine, this is not a crowded county. Social distancing has been a part of the way of life here for a long time. We also don't have a lot of international travelers visiting here, like some of the mountain resort communities. So really, the virus never had a, a chance to get a good foothold here in the beginning. And it stayed that way. Can you elaborate how bad luck led to the pandemic? Good luck? Yeah, um, scabies has a big thing to do with that. It's a really easily transmittable rash caused by mites, and that broke out in Mesa County Jail last fall. And the outbreak brought Mesa County public health officials into work with jail personnel. So um, throughout this, they learned some new protocols for isolating and quarantining people to stop the spread of, of a, an infectious disease. And they did the same thing for an outbreak of hepatitis A. So that was good practice. And then um, also last fall, there was a norovirus outbreak in the schools. And it was so bad that they had to close fall of the schools, 46 schools in Mesa County. And um, that gave them more practice for dealing with disaster in this community. Now, one in five Mesa County residents is over the age of 65. That statistic seems like it would push the numbers higher there. How has the county kept the virus from spreading to that population? Well, from what I've seen here, um, it appears that many seniors have been really good at stay-at-home directives. You don't see a lot of them out and about in places that might not be safe. And the nursing homes and assisted living homes here have a tight network. They share infection control and other measures, and they also work together. They got these, these homes closed down early on. So I'm, I'm knocking on wood as I say that, but there hasn't been a single confirmed case of the virus in the valleys, um, many homes for the elderly. There have also been no cases recorded in the homeless population, which is pretty high in your county. What measures are being used to prevent the spread of the virus in that community? Um, there's another coalition at work here, and that's service providers for the homeless population. Um, that includes different uh, soup kitchens and shelters. And they have worked together to institute some strict safety protocols and 
you know, things like food is being picked up now and they're passing out masks to the homeless. They're doing a lot of joint education projects. Is it possible there haven't been so many confirmed cases in Mesa County because there hasn't been a lot of testing done? A lot of people over here have been asking that, and I guess it is possible. Uh, there have been around 2,000 tests done now, and until recently, it was really hard to get a test. You had to have a physician's order. Um, one doctor told me that you needed to be dying before you could get tested, but that's loosened up here lately, and um this week, the county also started offering antibody tests. But I would say, and I've heard this from medical professionals, that the low numbers of hospitalized patients with coronavirus symptoms and the very slow spread of the virus here would indicate otherwise. Even though Mesa County is operating under loosened restrictions, it sounds like some residents there are growing antsy and want the rules relaxed even more. Are you seeing a lot of people clamoring for more freedoms? Um, yes. <laughs> there was a uh, protest parade recently and, uh, you know, a lot of cars with um, honking their horns, flags waving, going up and down a main thoroughfare. Um, several businesses opened here that shouldn't have under the guidelines and they had to close or partially close again. Bananas Fun Park was one of them. It's a water park. Mason Mall opened and closed in the same day. So you see a lot of people acting you know, like like this is serious. You also see a lot acting like there is no pandemic. And you see those people crowding the big box stores and without masks, ignoring distancing, that kind of thing. But in general, I would say they're following recommendations and so are business owners. Bruce Benge is one of them. He owns a 109-year-old shoe store on Grand Junction's Main Street. And his grandfather and the store survived the Spanish flu in 1918. Binge is one of those who's glad to be open, but is being very cautious. Well, we've got, you know, markings on the on the carpet to space out six feet social distancing. We're, you know, sanitizing things every day as we go along, you know, from pins to boxes to doorknobs to whatever. But uh, our hours are limited now. We're only open from 10 to 2. And uh, no more than seven people could be in the store because we've got three people on the floor. So... That's a total of 10. So just trying to make it safe and function and work, and we're wearing masks, and we en- we encourage our customers to wear masks, and most of them have so far. So, Jeff Kerr is the director of Mesa County Department of Public Health. We heard from him earlier. He told you he has one big fear going forward. What is that? Well, it's mountain bikers. He has seen uh, trailheads around here packed with visitors, ignoring the governor's recommendation to stay within 10 miles of home. There are just a ton of people, but there's no way to enforce any of that. But what we can do as residents is make sure that we maintain our own distance from those outside visitors. You know, we can at least do that. Mesa County has markers that would signal the county should back up and return to stay-at-home restrictions. What are those? Uh, Jeff Kerr told me that um, currently about 3.4% of those tested in Mesa County have been positive. If that number should climb to 10% or higher, that would trigger a return to stay at home. Another trigger would be 30 or more patients hospitalized. Currently, there's only one. Does life appear to be more normal in Mesa County under loosened restrictions? Yes and no. Um, I've definitely noticed there's a lot more traffic lately. There's more people out on Main Street, more in the parks. Riverfront trails are busy with bikers and hikers. 
There's long lines outside of the home improvement stores. And on the other side of that, the closed bars are a stark reminder that it's not normal. And I went uh, this weekend out to one of my favorite lavender farms. And normally you can just go out there and wander, you know, through all the beautiful flowers. And now there's yellow taped off corridors that you have to go through kind of like rats in a maze. It's still beautiful, but boy, it's, it's a reminder that we are not normal yet. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Nancy Lofholm is a freelance journalist in Mesa County. She's been reporting on the county's overall successful efforts to keep the novel coronavirus at bay. When we come back, why some of Colorado's professional athletes say we're all on a new team together. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're physically distancing, but it doesn't mean we can't be on the same page with a book kids and adults can read together. I'm Ryan Warner, inviting you to turn the page with Colorado Matters. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've chosen All the Impossible Things by Colorado Springs native Lindsay Lackey. I was always looking for books about kids who were living in Colorado, but I could only really find historical fiction and not even much of that. So I decided when I was young that someday I was going to write books that were set in the state I loved. And now I get to do just that. Order All the Impossible Things through the tattered cover or wherever you like to get books. Then join us May 20th for a virtual Q&A with the author. More at CPR.org slash turn the page. If you're a baseball fan, you're probably missing moments like this one. And that ball is shot in the left field. Fire up the fountains. She's gone. I love it. I love it. Fire up the fountains. There they go. Athletic events like Major League Baseball are still on hold even as Colorado begins to allow some non-essential businesses to reopen. And Jenny Kavnar, who you just heard there announcing a 2018 Colorado Rockies game, is asking people to practice physical distancing instead. I just want to encourage you to keep it up. We are all in this fight together, and we all need to do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and keep practicing physical distancing. I also want to thank our frontline workers and our essential workers for keeping us safe. And don't forget our friends that own small businesses and restaurants. Join me and take the pledge to practice common sense guidelines. Jenny Kavnar is from Aurora. She's an AT&T Sportsnet Rocky Mountain broadcaster. She was the first woman in a quarter century to do the televised play-by-play call for an MLB game. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Michaela Schifrin is another figure in Colorado athletics, asking people to stay home when they can. The 25-year-old from Edwards, Colorado, is already one of the greatest skiers in World Cup history and a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Hi, Michaela. Hi, how's it going? Going well. Michaela, before we hear your PSA and get into the project, I want to share something else that you posted on social media. It sounds like you may have a new career as a rapper. Get up what it is, what it does, what it is, what it isn't. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed, sit again on the internet and checking on a heavy get up. Fifth shot, fifth strip walking, little bit of humble, little bit of cautious. Somewhere between like Rocky and Crosby, sort of game, nope, nope, y'all can't copy. Yup, bad, moonwalking, this here. Is a party. My posse's been on Broadway, and we did it all week. A really delightful cover of Macklemore's Can't Hold Us There. 
Is rapping a hobby you've picked up during the extra time at home? <laughs> um, uh, interestingly enough, not really. I don't even know if I'd call it a ha- hobby, but one of my favorite songs to listen to at races is um, by Eminem. It's called Guts Over Fear, and Sia's featured in it. And I don't know why, but that's like my best pump-me-up song. And for the most part, I can rap the whole thing. Um, so I just I was just listening to Macklemore's song the other day, and I was like, hmm, I'd like to try to learn that. It is it's difficult, though. It took me <laughs> so a lot fun. of takes to get that. Nice. Jenny, can we expect to freestyle something when the Rockies return to the field? Man, I was going to say, I need to pick up a new hobby. Michaela's all on it, learning how to rap during quarantine time. I'm just trying to keep up with a two-year-old right now, uh, which oh, feels yeah. like a challenge <laughs> enough. But, yeah, I've been working on working on my call a little bit while he's playing wiffle ball in the backyard. So I think that's as close as I'm going to get to rapping some new lyrics. <laughs> I'd say that's a lot on your plate. Um, okay, Michaela, let's hear your PSA. You've heard it a million times by now, probably. But I'm going to make it a million and one. Stay home. Show love from afar. Hoard kindness, not toilet paper. Please go check out the Cura's U.S. website to learn about ways that you can help those in need and take the pledge to commit to living by the common sense guidelines listed on the site. I hope you're all staying safe and I'm sending my love. Michaela and Jenny, you are both part of a public service announcement featuring people connected to athletics in Colorado. It's called The Cure Is Us. It was created by Denver-based ad agency Cactus. Jenny, what about this particular project resonated with you? Well, I think the fact that you just mentioned it, there's some great athletes, um, some great Colorado-born athletes that are involved in it and uh, local Colorado athletes here. And I think it was a no-brainer to get on board. We're in a time where we as a community have to come together. And this is really the ultimate team sport right now. We have to play for each other. And that means staying at home and practicing physical distancing and just waiting until we can return to some bit of normalcy. But until there's a cure, until there's a vaccine, we all have to do our part um, to stay safe for each other. Oh, I love the idea of physical distancing as a team sport. Michaela, I'm guessing that even with our lives slowed down, you still have a lot of demands on your time. Why did you sign on to this? Yeah, you know, I, I have to agree with Jenny there. I think the idea that we all have a part to play in this role is important. And I also, you know, I, I was contacted a, a little while back about posting my own sort of PSA video um, in support of this campaign. And honestly, I wanted to take part and help spread a positive mass message about what we can do versus all the things we can't do right now. Um, you know, there's so many people out there who kind of just complaining about how inconvenient this whole situation is. And I feel like that's sort of a, a pointless argument. If, if it's even an argument at all, it kind of just it is what it is. It's inconvenient. That's fine. But there's a if what we're able to do to help stop the spread of the virus and able to help um, each other stay safe is stay home and keep our distance. And that's like I just feel like let's let's spread the message about positivity versus all the things that are not going the way we want it to go right now. And I felt like this campaign totally aligned with that message. And you're both active on social media, which was where we found your little ditty, Michaela. But I'm also <laughs> curious about something you posted late last week. It read, ready for takeoff again, preferably to a place with mountains and snow, with skis on my feet and wind on my face. Was that just stay at home fatigue or have you made specific plans to get back out there? 
And I wonder what oh, taking no. off again looks like for you. <laughs> no, that's just, um, that, it's part of the ready for sport campaign that, um, Adidas has put out there. It's, it's really just getting people excited for when we will be able to get back to it right now. We're not able to it. And the baseball fields are empty. The stadiums, there's, there's no people in it. It's quiet. It's, ominously silent in in the whole across the board of sports and all all sports arenas so um the idea is just we're united in the fact that we're ready to get back to it when the time comes so i haven't made plans yet um hopefully at some point we might be able to uh, my team might be able to get on snow and get some training in as ski racing Luckily, it's outdoors, and in a sense, the sport in and of itself is like kind of a social distancing sport. You're not contacting other people. You're well more than six feet away from other people, but I think that the tricky thing is how do you open a mountain without having everybody close to each other and in operations and chairlifts and, and that kind of thing. So I think it's just discussions right now. We're all hoping to get back to sport soon, but at the same time, I think every athlete on the planet right now knows what's necessary and is willing to put their interests and careers on the back burner for the health and safety of everybody. And you mentioned the way that sports are silent right now. Jenny, you're at the mercy of Major League Baseball in terms of your possible schedule. And under normal circumstances, we would be about a month into this 2020 baseball season. Right now, you're missing what would have been a 13-day, four-city road trip. That sounds exhausting, but are you missing it right now? Yeah, I'm missing it a ton. You know, I think Michaela made such a great point of trying to find the positive message in all of this. And as I've been able through my job to connect with players on Zoom for interviews we're doing on AT&T Sportsnet, I have found that to be a common theme. These players would never be home in the month of April, uh, in the month of May with their families. And right now they're experiencing a lot of home life and they're trying to enjoy it. And I'm trying to do the same. I feel so lucky for this time with my two-year-old Um, normally it's a shuffle in the morning to get to the ballpark or hopping on a plane. And even though it's bizarre, I think we're finding um, some solace in our new normal, so to speak, and enjoying that time together and enjoying that time being home. But there is no doubt that um, there are days I, you know, dream about being at the ballpark. I dream about watching games, covering games. And I think in our job as broadcasters, you know, we connect fans to athletes. And I miss that. I miss that a lot. And I'm finding that in these Zoom interviews, just being able to talk to players and find that connection again um, and realize that for the first time in all of our lifetimes, we're going through something the exact same. I think oftentimes fans put athletes on a pedestal, but um, Michaela is doing the exact same thing every day that average Joe is doing, and that is staying at home and staying safe. And you mentioned staying at home with Vincent, your two-year-old. I wonder, could you tell us about something that you've been able to experience that you might have missed if you'd been engaged in the regular season? Yeah, I think it's just the day-to-day, watching him grow, watching what he learns and, and what he absorbs. I think sometimes when you're gone, you miss the process. You know, when I'm gone for a long road trip or for a full week, I'll come back and uh, he's changed so much in just a couple of days. And so getting to just kind of be in that every day and uh, get to do what he loves. We're going out for a morning scooter 
or an evening scooter and just watching like how he improved, you just become this proud parent and getting to see the development um, with your own two eyes and not just on FaceTime or through pictures and video is really special. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Um, as we've said, there are virtually no athletics going on. Michaela, besides being a participant, I'm guessing you're a sports fan as well. What are you missing about sports right now? I am currently missing, but I think we'll be missing more and more as uh, as this kind of we get into summer. Tennis. I love watching tennis, and I do love that most broadcasters are finding ways to put on repeat. You know, um, different sporting events on repeat, but I don't know. There's like, if you know how it went, I I don't know. I'm going to miss watching the French Open. I'm going to miss watching Wimbledon. Um, you know, that tennis was one of my favorite things to watch. So as a, as a sports fan, that's one of the biggest things. But, you know, you talk about baseball is like America's pastime and um, football and basketball. Last year at this time, we were watching the Nuggets um, making their run in the playoffs and like, that was so exciting. It's just, I think there's a, there is a lot to miss, but that also means there's a lot of anticipation built up for when it does come back. Yeah. And then I also wonder, what have you experienced or realized that you appreciate more now because of all of this that's going on? Well, I have definitely come to appreciate a lot of things, not just because of this crisis, but because um, just back in the beginning of February, my my dad passed away unexpectedly and I was in Europe training for an upcoming race series and found out my, my brother called me and my mom was over there. She travels with me as one of my ski coaches and, you know, we rushed home and all of a sudden I was home in the middle of, you know, February, beginning of March for five weeks when I would never otherwise be home. And I wasn't able to train because we had so so much to figure out during that time. And, you know, normally I think when, a, you know, somebody that important in your life um, passes away, especially in the unexpected and tragic accidents, it's not like at a certain point the world moves on. And a lot of people in that stage of grieving, like the most frustrating thing is that the world ha- seems to have moved on. And the crazy thing right now is that, the world has not moved on. The world has come to a stop. And even though the two are so completely unrelated, that has given me and my mom and my family time to be together, um, to try to work through all of the sort of operational details of, uh, you know, taking over, running the household and running me as not like as an athlete, but actually the the business side of it, um, which is also something my dad was, he was like the CEO of Michaela Schifrin as a business. And just like, I've kind of been taking a crash course in, in, you know, taxes and, and business and sponsorship contracts and all of that kind of stuff. And I've been learning a lot. My mom has been doing the same um, so we're actually very, very thankful and appreciative of the time, like Jenny said, this time together and being with each other and having the time to learn this stuff that we would have been, we would have been doing it anyway. Normally I'd be at a ski camp in California right now. And honestly, this year, if that had gone the way it was supposed to go, I might've had to cancel it because some of this stuff is time sensitive and, and needs to be sort of 
sorted through right now. So we're, we're thankful for that. Definitely. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss. Your father, Jeff, um, he was an anesthesiologist and an avid photographer. You also mentioned on Twitter how he could capture your emotions out on the slopes better than anyone else. Could you tell us the story behind a favorite shot of yours that he took? Oh my gosh, there's there's got to be a million. But um, one of my favorites is actually, I mean, almost every single one of his pictures that he's taken I love. And he always gets me in the moment when, like, I tend to make these really awkward faces when anytime there's a sort of pause in in a moment, you know, for instance, on the podium, right, you know, in the moment between when they announce my name and actually play the national anthem, there's this awkward pause when they're, like, pressing the play button. And um, I'm always, I feel so awkward during that time. So I normally, like, I do this weird scrunchy thing with my face or do something funky with my eyebrows. And he, because he know, because um, he knew me so well, he always knew to anticipate those moments and take the picture when everybody else had their cameras down. Um, but one of my favorite pictures is actually some some one that somebody else took, and I'm not actually sure who it was, but it's a picture of my dad taking a picture of me. Um, two seasons ago in March at, at World Cup finals. And um, I had broken the record for the most World Cup wins in a season. And my dad was one of the people who instilled in me this idea that like winning is not, even though it's kind of the goal, the important thing is if you actually made any good turns. So the entire season, people were asking me about these records and um, I kept saying, like, I don't really care. I'm just out here to try to make good turns and really, really do my best. Um, but at the end of a very long season and a, a lot of amazing success, I, I just felt like, I don't know, it was just this big sigh of relief. And my dad was there. He captured the moment. And he said, um, he, I don't know, he's like, my last race, he literally just said to me, I won and it was great. And everyone was excited. And he said to me, um, that's awesome. But did you, did you feel good? Did you make any good turns? And that's one of the things I remember the most about him. And I felt like this picture, it showed him capturing that moment. I don't know. I love the pictures that he's actually in it. You know what I mean? And this was, this was Mm -hmm. one with both of us in it, but he was doing something that he loved. And, um, just, it, it makes me, it really makes me remember him in, in the way, in just a really wonderful way. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah, this has been awesome. <laughs> Michaela Schifrin of Edwards, Colorado is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and one of the greatest skiers in World Cup history. Jenny Kavnar is an Aurora native and a broadcaster for AT&T Sportsnet Rocky Mountain. They joined us to discuss the absence of sports due to the novel coronavirus, as well as their participation in a project featuring athletes encouraging public safety during the pandemic. Parents, we want to hear from you. Next week, a Colorado Matters special will explore the struggles and challenges that come with parenting in a pandemic. Before then, we'd like you to share your most memorable parenting moment you've had over the last couple of months. Leave us a voicemail at 303-871-9191, extension 480. So again, that's CPR's main phone number, extension 480.
Finally today, in the age of staying at home and social distancing, live music is having to go virtual. That includes the Five Points Jazz Festival. For nearly 20 years, the celebration has typically attracted crowds in the thousands for a day-long event in Denver's historic Five Points neighborhood with dozens of Colorado acts performing across multiple stages. This year, the event will look a little different. With a two-hour broadcast on Rocky Mountain PBS, KUVO Jazz, and Facebook Live, KUVO will also air segments all day from past festivals. The lineup includes Hazel Miller, Ritmo Jazz Latino, and the Grammy-winning vocalist Diane Reeves. Many of the virtual festival's performances were recorded ahead of time by engineer Colin Bricker. He invited artists to his Denver recording studio, including a quartet that features cornetist Ron Miles. Everybody was in separate rooms, and he had been really careful about making sure it was really just as spotlessly clean as you could imagine, and taking every precaution until we got to play live. And I must tell you that I didn't realize how much I missed playing with people. It was so fun. I mean, it was it was very different, but still just to hear everyone's sound and to blend and everything, it was really quite, quite welcome at this time. Remarkably, for being such a fixture on the Denver jazz scene, this will be Miles' debut at the Five Points Festival. His touring and recording schedule often has him out of town. For me, this is really awesome that I get to participate, because I would have been gone, actually, again this year, uh, out on the road. So I'm just excited to get a chance to play, because just historically, I mean, I think about all the times that I would you know, ride the bus downtown and walk across Larimer to get the five points of a rehearsal or something. So I'm honored to get a chance to participate. This is a really special moment for me. As for the rest of the year, all of Miles' gigs have been canceled, including tours in Europe and Asia. In the meantime, he's putting a lot of hours practicing his horn and listening to records. He looks forward to the day when festivals return to normal and live music venues open back up going to the Village Vanguard and Dazzle or, or, or these places. and I certainly want to hear some live music really soon. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed the online things as much as anybody else, and I listen to podcasts and all that, but man alive, do I miss hearing people playing in the moment in a, in a space. So however we can get it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what it takes. If it's just five of us at a time, they get to go in and hear a tune and rotate. That's cool by me. <laughs> Denver cornetist Ron Miles, one of the featured performers in this year's Five Points Jazz Virtual Festival. It will be broadcast this Saturday at 6 p.m. on Rocky Mountain PBS and Facebook Live or hear it on the radio at 8 p.m. on Kuvo. 
That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining me. This is CPR News. Thank you.